do we see at Groundswell this year, the 26th and 27th of June, close to London, UK? Many friends of the podcast will be there. John Kempf, Abby Rose, Benedict Bozo, Henry Dimbleby, Claire Hill, Russ Carrington, Andy Cato, Tim Coates, and many, many more. See you there. What if every restoration project, which could be a farm, a forest, or a wetland, is registered on a science-based open data platform, and thus the progress, or lack of it, is made transparent for all of us to follow? We covered what satellite data can already tell us and what is coming in the future and why Clara is so interested in bioacoustics and biodiversity. Welcome to another episode of Investing in Regenerative Agriculture, Investing as if the Planet Mattered, a podcast show where I talk to the pioneers in the regenerative food and agriculture space to learn more on how to put our money to work to regenerate soil, people, local communities and ecosystems, while making an appropriate and fair return. Why my focus on soil and regeneration? Because so many of the pressing issues we face today have their roots in how we treat our land, grow our food and what we eat. And it's time that we as investors, big and small and consumers, start paying much more attention to the dirt slash soil underneath our feet. In March last year, we launched our membership community to make it easy for fans to support our work. And so many of you have joined as a member. We've launched different types of benefits, exclusive content, Q&A webinars with former guests, Ask Me Anything sessions, plus so much more to come in the future. For more information on the different tiers, benefits and how to become a member, check gumroad.com slash investingregionag or find the link below. Thank you. Welcome to another episode today with Clara Rowe, the CEO of Restore. Restore is a science-based open data platform to support and connect the global restoration movement. Welcome, Clara. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And to start with the personal question, I always like to ask, how did you end up in the restoration movement and why are you focusing on restoration of soil and also obviously of other, other places, but how did you end up in the restoration movement? Great question. <laughs> it's been a whirlwind year since I started at Restore, and so it's always fun to kind of look back and remind myself how I got involved in the first place. Before I was at Restore, I worked in sustainable supply chains. So I worked for a nonprofit that supported companies who were trying to figure out how to get deforestation and exploitation of people out of their supply chains, palm oil and cocoa and soy. I worked mostly in Latin America and what I started to see was that over time, in addition to the no deforestation commitments that companies were making, there was more and more interest in figuring out how to integrate their forest and ecosystem related commitments with their climate commitments. And ultimately, what that means is restoration of nature of some sort within supply chains on farms. And so when Tom Crowther, the founder of Restore, reached out to me over a year ago to say that he was starting this organization and would I like to come on to lead it? It felt like a perfect transition in terms of being able to approach restoration from a different perspective, from a science-based and tool-based and digital perspective. And so, I mean, I described it in a sentence or a sentence and a half, but what is your, I hate to say elevator pitch, but like restore in a few sentences or a few more sentences, how would you describe it to you? your grandparents, your children, or anybody that is interested but doesn't really have the background. Right. So for me, whenever I talk about what restore is, I always have to start by talking about what restoration is, what nature restoration is. And as we think about it at restore, 
Restoration is really a continuum that ranges from sustainable agricultural practices and agroforestry to, you know, protecting existing ecosystems to restoring in some form or another wetlands and peatlands and forests. And so it involves many, many ecosystems. I think often we just think about planting trees, but there are, of course, many other native ecosystems to protect and to restore. And it involves many different kinds of intervention. So it's not just putting a seedling in the ground. It's also often just fencing off an area and allowing it to restore itself. And there's this huge potential in that range of nature restoration. One, to be able to draw down carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So restoration of forests alone has the potential to draw down about 30% of carbon emissions. It has the potential to prevent about 60% of expected biodiversity loss, and it could improve food security for over a billion people around the world. And so fundamentally, Restore's mission is to unlock this potential of nature restoration for biodiversity and for climate and for people. And, you know, we're doing this by bringing together every nature restoration project around the globe on a single open access platform. You know, believe it or not, there's actually nowhere you can go today to find all the restoration work that's happening. You know, whether that's at a large scale or a very small scale, there's just no one single place. We don't know where it's all happening. And so we're bringing those projects together. We're offering free standardized ecological data to these projects to help them with their decision-making. We're offering best-in-class satellite monitoring, which allows them to track progress. And also, you know, it brings transparency to these restoration efforts around the world. And by bringing projects together, we're also allowing them to learn from each other and to gain visibility, you know, whether that's to funders, to other projects, to technical tools who might be able to provide them support. So in a way, you can think of us sort of as a Google Maps for restoration, you know, really putting restoration together on the map. And what has been the biggest surprise over the last year or in general, but what has been your biggest surprise once you started leading Restore in terms of, I mean, the attention, let's say, has exploded for restoration, regeneration, restoring things in general, but that's maybe not a surprise that maybe we were just waiting for it. But what has been your biggest surprise over the last, let's say, 12 months? You know, I think that for me, the incredible positivity in this space has been surprising. Working in you know, compared to the negative energies in, in climate in general. Yeah. Well, yeah, you know, there's, there's a lot of reasons to be worried about the direction that the planet is going. But restoration is this very positive space, right? It's not focused on simply protecting what's there and watching, honestly, a lot of what's there disappear. It's focused on how can we not only keep what is there today intact, but also grow back right? And so there's just a lot of excitement. There's a lot of potential. We hear because we're bringing together all these restoration projects, we get to hear from people all over the world. Some people who are just doing this as a hobby in their backyard and, you know, communities who have been doing this for decades and are excited to connect and to share the work that they're doing. So it just feels like a very, you know, positive buzzing place to be. And what is, I think investors always like to ask the question of why now? Like, what is it that this moment in time, apart from all the attention, and it's, I mean, biodiversity finally gets attention, soil gets attention, et cetera, et cetera. Trees get a lot of attention. But why, let's say from a technology perspective, or why is this the moment to launch something and to build something like Restore? 
Well, we're running out of time <laughs> to be able to fight the climate crisis, to be able to fight global poverty as climate also compounds that, to be able to prevent species extinctions. And, you know, technology can be an enabler. And for me, enable is that key word, right? Restoration is the center of what we do. We're just simply trying to, through technology, enable that to happen more efficiently, more effectively, more responsibly. And there's a lot of money on the line. There's a lot of money that needs to be invested in order for, you know, restoration and nature-based solutions more broadly to be able to contribute what they need to contribute to address the climate crisis by 2050. You know, I've heard a lot of numbers thrown around, but 8 trillion mm -hmm. is what is estimated is needed to be able to unlock the potential of nature-based solutions between now and 2050. And so, you know, we need to do that, as I say, efficiently, effectively, responsibly, and that requires transparency. And at Restore, that's what we're trying to bring to this movement right now. And what do you see your role as a as Restore to, let's say, the financial world, the world that wants to put money to work in an investing way is not necessarily the grand side of things. What can you bring already now or like investors that are listening, but what are you also planning to bring in the near future? Yeah, so... You know, today we're making visible many, many projects that never were visible in the past. Some of the restoration projects on our platform already have funding. Some of them are seeking ongoing funding. Sometimes they're seeking philanthropic contributions, but sometimes they're open for investment. And so if you are an investor interested in contributing to nature restoration in some way, again, across that continuum that I described, Restore is a place that allows you to start looking for where you might be able to invest and also guarantee that there's transparency in the long term about what's actually happening on the ground where investments are occurring. And as we build, we want to make that easier and easier and easier for the transparency piece, for searching, right, for projects to support, really building kind of a smart infrastructure for the way that restoration projects can be connected to funders and that real accountability happens between that in terms of progress made. There's a lot to unpack there. And in terms of technology, like how do you make sure that transparency is there? Is that a big part? And maybe that's why it, it's happening now. Like the satellite part of it, that you make sure like you cannot choose to not be covered by a satellite. Like you will be followed in a good way or a bad way, but in a good way in this case. Is that the core of that? Like we can transparently follow these projects even if the projects itself or the companies or the farms, et cetera, don't supply data? It is. That's a really core piece of it. So when projects join Restore, they have two options. They can join publicly or they can join privately. So if they join privately, the Restore data is really just for them and no one else can see the boundaries of their project. But if they join publicly, which many, many projects are doing now, anyone can see the boundary of the work that they're doing, and therefore the satellite imagery that we have compiled that is available globally is available you know, to be able to compare with the boundaries of that work. And there's a number of different sources of satellite imagery that we use, but perhaps the most impactful in terms of the visual progress is the Maxar imagery that we're hosting. It goes back to 2011, and there's updates every few years, and that's half a meter resolution. So 50 centimeters, in some areas actually 30 centimeters resolution, which essentially allows you to see every tree. And that's an incredibly powerful tool from a transparency perspective. And just to give people perspective, 
that's something that's relatively recent that you have access to, that we as society have access to this kind of level? Or is it something that's been around for a while or was it very expensive? Like, why is this happening now? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, I mean, the satellites are getting better and better, like almost every day. It feels like, right, there's launches of new satellites with higher resolution. Is that difficult for you or not? To keep up? <laughs> it is. Because so much seems to be happening? Or is it amazing? I mean, both. <laughs> we have a geospatial team who's responsible both both for making sure that we're bringing in the best available global satellite data, and also that we're building analytics so that you can actually derive meaningful insights at scale. So, you know, I mentioned this half a meter resolution visual imagery, for example, That's terrific if you're willing to take the time to look at any given place on Earth. But if you wanted to have an automated report that tells you how has the land changed here or how many trees here, you need to do additional analytics on top of that. So, you know, our team is working and with external partners as well to figure out how can we bring the ability to delineate individual tree crowns, for example, to this high resolution imagery. How can we take that imagery and estimate diversity of the area based on the structural diversity that's visible in terms of forest cover. So that's another key piece is, you know, you can show as much as you'd like to show, but until you can actually say something meaningful about what that means to a restoration effort, it has limited utility in terms of the scale that it can reach from a decision-making perspective. Yeah, it's what is often referred to. I mean, I think the amount of terabytes of data coming to decision makers, to farmers, to land stewards, etc., is theoretically enormous and practically as well. I mean, many people are flying drones that collect so much data that basically will blow up a hard drive in a second. Exactly. <laughs> But then the question is, what do you do with that? How does it translate into do doing something or not doing something? And how does that work? And that there, it's where it seems to be where the real juicy part and the magic happens. Exactly. And that's a real midterm priority for us is the way that we integrate existing data that projects might already have and provide meaningful analytics. So drone imagery is a good example, you know, being able to allow projects to upload drone imagery and get simple analytics in terms of, you know, coverage, in terms of spectral diversity, perhaps. We've been thinking a lot about how we can also help with the bottlenecks in terms of bioacoustic data processing, which could you know, have huge potential in terms of the ability to, to monitor biodiversity, but again, big kind of data storage and analytic challenge. So we would really like to be able to make it so that anyone on earth can upload some standard data formats and get useful information from Restore about what's happening in their area and that we can then use that to bring additional transparency to what's happening everywhere. And just for anybody, how would you describe bioacoustics? Because I know more or less what it is, but not really. Why is it so promising and why are you so interested in it? Yeah. So, you know, bioacoustics are basically just the sounds that are coming from nature. And I think there's been a lot of focus on, for example, being able to identify birds and estimate bird biodiversity, but also you can do that for insects. You can actually do it for abiotic, right? Non-living factors like water and the sounds that water picks up. So basically when you put together all of those sounds, you know, you get this soundscape, which you can then use to estimate, you know, how much this area has recovered in comparison to an intact area. And the reason it's so exciting from a scalability perspective is that In theory, this could happen 
through a phone, right? And anything for me, anything that could happen with a handheld device that many, many people around the world have access to is something that we should really invest in. And to be clear, it's not perfect yet. We can't just take any phone and get a you know perfect idea of the biodiversity in an area. But there are more specific, you know, recording devices that when used with proper protocols can do that. And we can imagine a path to scale through cell phones. Yeah. So basically we would be able, maybe with a little add-on on our phone or with a really good phone, and of course with the GPS built into that and the proper app with the right protocols to make sure that we record a standard, but phones are relatively cheap and they can store, et cetera. So you can imagine a cheaper way or a much easier way to record a lot of audio from ecosystems that then could be analyzed when they're uploaded and things like that. That's exactly right, which, you know, provides an incredible complement to the information that we can derive from satellites, which starts to give us a richer and richer perspective on what's actually happening in these areas that we're trying to restore. And I'll just emphasize, you know, bioacoustic, biodiversity, it's a very key dynamic as we think about the future of restoration, especially in the next 20 years when there's so much focus on carbon sequestration. And that's, of course, incredibly important. But if we only think about that, right, we lose many other dimensions of what makes an ecosystem whole. And so the ability to have scalable ways to measure biodiversity and not just carbon is something that we're really interested in helping to bring to the table. And how is Restore itself organized as an entity itself? Like what's your quote unquote business model or what's your founding path in that sense? Yeah. So we spun off from the Crowther Lab, a science lab at ETH Zurich in Switzerland at the, the end of 2020. So we're about a year old now. And we were basically set up as a company that is owned by a charitable foundation. So right now, 100% of our shares are owned by the Restore Foundation that was set up in order to be able to protect and restore Earth's ecosystems. And that means that, you know, we operate in, in a nimble startup fashion. You know, we grew our team last year from one to 12 full-time people and a lot of part-time people spread around the world as well. But we fundamentally have a mission to do good and any profit that we generate in the future will be reinvested into the work that we're doing with restoration projects around the world. And we're still working on our business model, but essentially, you know, we have a core platform, which we intend to keep free forever. And we're going to be building digital services, for example, the ability to monitor restoration projects across many sites and compare the ability to select sites for investment and create portfolios around those sites to be able to generate revenue and cover cost over time. And so we're really eager to experiment in 2022 with partners around the digital services that we build and ensuring that we're really adding as much value as possible to the broader kind of restoration ecosystem as we do that. Do you want to learn how to invest or are you an entrepreneur and want to build companies in the regenerative food and agriculture space? Or do you work in big ag and big food and want to really move the needle? We have developed a new video course for you. Find out more on investinginregenerativeagriculture.com slash course or in the show notes description below. 
And I mean, I think the setup by being owned by a foundation is extremely interesting. I mean, we've had Armin Storianagel of Purpose on the show actually quite a while ago. We should check in. But how to preserve or protect the mission of mission-driven companies is obviously a, a very hot topic, let's say, in the investment and impact investing movement. But do you see a role for investors at some point in Restore or is that too early as you've been basically a year old so far? Yeah, I think it's early for us to decide. I think, of course, the key balance that we want to strike is, you know, maintaining our core focus on our mission, but having the capital to be able to grow. You know, there's not a lot of time <laughs> to do the things that we need to do in terms of, you know, the piece that nature restoration can play in the broader fight against climate change. So we know that we want to be able to scale quickly. So for us, you know, this year we'll do be doing a lot of learning in terms of our ability to both attract additional philanthropic contributions through the foundation in order to grow our work, our own ability to generate revenue through digital services and grow that way. And that will help us evaluate the space for investors in the impact that we're trying to have. And what do you see as a more general role for investors in this restoration movement and space? You mentioned, of course, a few projects are looking for investors, etc. But what I imagine I, I usually like to say, I mean, we're in a digital space now, but let's say we're recording this in the theater and we're sitting on stage and the room is full of smart impact investors. They've read the books, they've seen the nature-based solutions, documentaries, etc. And they want to get involved, obviously without giving investment advice, but what would be your point is like where to look or where to dig a bit deeper or where to get involved if people want to start getting involved also with their investment amounts? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I guess in no particular order, I would say I'd, I'll reiterate kind of my message about thinking beyond carbon. So as investors are thinking about investing in climate change solutions, thinking about the way that those solutions are also thinking about people and are thinking about biodiversity remembering that restoration, regenerative agriculture, it's not a silver bullet from a carbon perspective. And, you know, I think often that's, it's something that I talk a lot about when we talk about restoration, because I think kind of a, a common concern about forest restoration, especially as a solution in the climate world, is that we will only focus on that. And we will forget that we also, you know, we'll use that as an easy way out and we won't focus on the investments needed in renewables and the changes in behavior that are needed and the changes in government policy. So it's a long way of saying if a project is promising that they are, you know, the solution to climate change, you probably want to look a little bit deeper because it's always just going to be one piece of the solution. Look for science-backed initiatives as much as possible, I think is really important. What is the tie to the scientific community? But on the other hand, you know, what is the social focus that projects are bringing? Because this is really key to the long-term sustainability of work. Yeah, I think they're both very, very good points. I mean, we often see in the space people are coming with the solution to everything. Yeah. I mean, it could be an input company. Like if you spray this, then everything grows better. <laughs> and, and like it's like if we only would do this, then we'll be fine, etc. And at the same time, at the science piece, it's very difficult, I think, to filter there because there's so much noise and a lot of things look and sound like science and not necessarily are. The way we've had a very interesting scientist turned farmer on the regenerative ag piece, Jonathan Lundgren in the US, that 
left the scientific world, but not necessarily. He set up a farm and does a lot of research there with the scientific world, but says in terms of Regen Ag, he says the most interesting things currently are happening on farms. The problem is we, as many university scientists, have, have no longer farmed or haven't farmed in a long time. So we don't see either what's happening or it sounds impossible. Like this is, you cannot do this according, but he says we have to set farms up again and then be in deep science work and write the papers and do the work and not the other way around because otherwise we miss this movement unfortunately so there's that tension but that doesn't mean obviously that we should i mean the scientific principles are extremely important there yeah no i'm so glad you brought that up though because it is it's about holding that tension of the knowledge of actually doing right practitioner knowledge local knowledge indigenous knowledge and the ways in which we scale that and one of the paths to scale is, you know, through the scientific process and understanding common principles and thinking about how to bring that elsewhere. So, it, you know, it is a tension to pay attention to and not something, I think, to be taken lightly in terms of science providing all of the answers. Yeah, and especially many things might sound impossible and many things are, <laughs> uh, but some of them actually are not. And our common knowledge in five or 10 years, and we all look back and thought, of course, now we know that the trees communicate to each other. And of course now we, but at that time, the person, and I wouldn't say discovering that, but the person really banging the drum and writing the papers was put away as a complete idiot. And there are many examples of that. The problem is figuring out which one actually makes sense five or 10 years down the line, and we don't have right. that time. So it's a very interesting tension to not underestimate the seemingly impossible, which we have a lot of things like that in regeneration and restoration. I mean, we get promised the moon and the stars of stabilizing climate, bringing back rivers and all of that. And some of it might be true and some of it probably is true, but not all. Yeah. <laughs> so what would you do if you would be in charge of a large investment fund? It could be a billion dollars. I used to say a billion dollars, which was a lot of money <laughs> until billions started flying around everywhere. But let's say a lot of money. What would you prioritize if you had to put that to work? That's such a good and hard question. <laughs> um, you know, I think big picture, you start with divining your your values, right? Um, setting policies. And, you know, I, I mentioned that I used to work in the sustainable agriculture world and the supply chain world. And there are a lot of good standards that exist out there around no deforestation, no exploitation, you know, respect for indigenous and local communities and including smallholders and supply chains. And so I think starting there and saying, you know, what is the baseline? What are the values that I want to hold as I'm thinking about investment is really important. Mapping enabling conditions, you know, government policy, where are subsidies, what is incentivizing or disincentivizing regenerative agriculture around the world. And then thinking about a diversity of, of approaches, both geographically in terms of farm size bottom up versus top down, right? You can think about going through, you know, a giant supply chain, corporate supply chain and reaching farmers that way through their buyers, or you can think about starting at the grassroots. And I would want to think about testing several of those different approaches and really building a diverse portfolio in that way. And what do you see as most underrepresented or under? I wouldn't say funded or underinvested, but most overlooked in the conversations you have, let's say with the financial world, is that the biodiversity or is that that beyond carbon piece or are there other pieces, maybe it's the oceans or the mangroves or the insects in general? What do you see as most 
neglected in the space at the moment. I mean, you've you've mentioned a lot of key ones. Um, I do think that the... If you had to pick one. Yeah, if I had to pick one. Like your favorite neglected pet. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I would say biodiversity and people. From the restore perspective, we have more to bring to the table in terms of bringing biodiversity into the conversation and ensuring that that isn't overlooked. But it's equally as important to think about people and who owns land, who has traditionally managed land, how do they contribute? And so for me, those are things that are beginning to enter the conversation more and more. There's often a lot of lip service and then perhaps not the follow through in terms of funding. But I think that it's, you know, there are steps being taken down the path to center the biodiversity and people part in addition to the carbon part. And I hope that we continue to take those steps really purposefully and that investors are, are a really important piece of making that path really walkable in the long term. And what do you see the role? I mean, in how, how much are you already asking those questions when projects are registering and filling out the data, etc.? On the people side, are you asking those questions already? And if not, how would you do that? Or when will that come? Yeah, so we have some required and some optional self-disclosed information that include uh, social aspects around land tenure, around yeah, ownership and management of particular projects. And we want to make it both easier for projects to fill out that information. That's, you know, really just a user experience challenge from our perspective so that we are collecting that data from more and more projects, but also incentivize the sharing of that information. So we've been thinking about how we might include, you know, transparency ratings, for example, rather than a quality rating, which is not such an easy thing to compare when you have an agroforestry project next to a massive forest restoration project. So, you know, we think that an important piece of what we're building is ultimately making it more and more desirable to share more and more information, which allows us to be clearer and clearer about how the social aspects as well as the other pieces of restoration are visible. Yeah, because especially land ownership can be very sensitive, very interesting, but I can also imagine maybe prohibitive of people sharing uh, if they have to fill that out. But yeah, how do you still tease it out? Because it's such a, an essential piece of the restoration movement and a very often overlooked one. Exactly. And, you know, right now we haven't required land ownership as a prerequisite for putting a project on restore for a few reasons. One is simply the practicality of being able to verify that. And the reality that there is so much land tenure conflict in many parts of the world. Yeah. But the other is often restoration projects are really the coming together of many different actors, right? There might be a larger landscape with many small farmers who are brought together through cooperatives. And then you have, you know, NGOs and government agencies who are funding. And so there's no one quote unquote manager of that project. It's a big collaborative effort. And so right now, really on a ad hoc basis, we've addressed particular concerns that have come up about projects that have been put on the platform without perhaps the knowledge of one of the actors. And we've made it easy for projects to have multiple managers so that you can really bring in that multi-stakeholder effort. But as we grow, we will have to continue to formalize the way that we address any potential concerns around the ownership and management of a particular site. And this might be a good segue to a question I always like to ask. If there was one thing, it might have to do with land tenure, maybe absolutely not. 
But if there would be one thing you could change overnight, so you have a magic wand and, and you have only one wish, unfortunately, <laughs> um, what would that be? It could be in the restoration movement, could be anywhere else as well, but what would you change? Oh, thinking about your work and your space in the regenerative agriculture movement, it strikes me that, you know, farmers are risk averse, right? And for good reason, <laughs> because implementing change at the farm level takes time. I think if I could wave a magic wand, I would, I would take away the risks that farmers face so that behavior change could come more quickly. And, you know, parts of that is just funding that transition, right? From going from traditional agriculture to regenerative agriculture. And, you know, some of it is about opening up, I think, you know, farmer minds to being able to think about change. But I, you know, and, and I say that with deep respect for, you know, decades and centuries of farmer knowledge that have built practices. But that's a piece that I keep coming back to is how do we help with this transition that is so complicated from a management perspective and from a behavior perspective. And in terms of restore, and let's say the agriculture side, what are you most looking forward to bring on where the beginning of the year, like this year in 2022, on the agriculture side, are there any exciting things coming or any things you obviously, are, if you're comfortable sharing things that you're looking forward to, let's say on the ag piece? Mm. We've had some exciting conversations with, and I won't name specific names, but um, organizations and companies who are connected to many, many small farmers and who, you know, are, are trying to support farmers and bring better wages, better compensation to farmers for their environmental and social practices. I'm really excited about working to get larger groups of farmers onto the Restore platform, both so that we can think about the ways in which perhaps additional compensation through carbon credits or others could supplement income that they have today through the sale of the products that they're producing. And also so that, you know, more broadly, we all, and, you know, I use we very broadly here, can learn from the work that's happening in the farmer space and we can inspire more and more farmers to change the way that they're practicing. So I know there's there's a little bit of vagueness there, but ultimately, as I say, restoration includes sustainable agriculture and, you know, the umbrella that that represents. And so the more we can highlight that and make that visible and also reward those farmers who are doing that work, the better, you know, for all of us and the more we can expand what we think of as the restoration movement. And do you see that division that sometimes, sometimes I feel um, that that's quite clear on like the restoring nature movement and uh, let's say the regenerative or agroecology or sustainable agriculture movement, they don't always seem to talk. Do you see that often in the projects you work with or as they're often landscapes or larger pieces that often they include both? Or is it is it a very divided uh, space? The, the restoration one, like one side is growing food and the other side is trying to restore? Yeah, I do think that it tends to be divided or it has historically been divided. And there's many, many reasons for that. There's sort of traditional Western views of what conservation and kind of restoring to a quote unquote natural state look like. And those are often in contrast to what it means to have restoration in the context of producing food and supporting people. And so I think that those historical divides have meant that there's sort of different directions in the broader restoration space. I do think 
you know, you mentioned landscape scale restoration. I think that that really helps to bring together a bigger picture of how these things connect. And I hope that by bringing these many different kinds of projects together in one place, that as Restore, we can help raise awareness about both the interconnectivity and the nuance and the great diversity of what it means to be able to restore and the many, many different reasons why restoration is important for climate, for people, for biodiversity. And if there was one thing you could wish for, like in terms of technical ability, would that be a special satellite or be a a really good data set on biodiversity? Like on the restore perspective, what would really help you what isn't possible yet or maybe completely unaffordable? What would you wish for if you could choose something in the shop with that pay? I would love to be able to, um, I guess, skip over all of the development work that need. I mentioned bioacoustics, so it's on my mind. But if we could skip over all of the development work that still needs to happen and we could simply say, okay, with your existing smartphone, download this app, stand out here, record, put it on restore, done. If we could kind of skip the the development that's still needed, I think that would just be an incredible gift (laughs) to the restoration movement. Yeah, and I think it's, I've seen, I have to look, there's an American artist on the soundscaping side that has done some very interesting, and of course the name doesn't pop into my mind now, but as done, yeah, I'll put it in the show notes below, some very interesting work on showing the soundscapes basically of forests, intact ones, even some of them have selectively been cut, and the difference in sound, like the forest seems the same, but the difference in sound is stunning. Like the quantity, the quality, the diversity, etc. You can hear the difference, but not see the difference, which is very, very interesting, obviously, from an investor perspective as well. Yeah, exactly. And there's so much incredible work, right, that's already happened in this space. And so really, it's about figuring out what are the pieces that we can pull together to make it accessible, to make it scalable, to overcome the hurdles around the analytics of all of it. But it's not like we're starting from zero. No, luckily not, luckily not. And then, of course, we have to map and compare and yeah, baseline and all of that. So that's that's a, an extremely... And, and do you feel we're close to that? Like, if we have this conversation in a year from now, have we made a lot of progress with the acoustic side of things and the biodiversity side? I do think so, yeah. We're going to be piloting... I mean, again, many people around the world are doing this work, and we're trying to just build upon the the incredible work that's already happened so far. We'll be piloting that work with a number of projects this year, we'll be piloting the integration of that onto the Restore platform. So I think that by the end of the year, we'll have the beginnings of what it looks like for anyone to be able to upload an audio file and get some basic information from Restore about what that area looks like. Wow, that's extremely exciting. I'll definitely be checking in. And I want to thank you so much for your time and for sharing this early journey. I mean, it's a year, which is a lot and nothing at the same time, <laughs> going from one person to 12, obviously, but it seems like there's a lot of momentum behind it. And I'm, I'm very I'm much looking forward to follow it over time and also what this means for, for agriculture, for agroforestry, for ocean farming, and then all of the pieces of this globe that have to be restored. Well, thanks so much for having me, Kuhn. Yeah, I'm very, very excited about continuing to bring together these narratives of 
more traditional forest nature restoration and, you know, agroecology in the agriculture space. And I think that these kind of conversations are a really terrific opportunity to help bring those worlds closer. Yeah, they're definitely not separate as we, we, I'm saying in the global north, have thought for a long time. It's nature in one corner, a big fence around it, and it will be okay, and agriculture somewhere else, and city somewhere else. It's, it's all a flux and a continuum. Yep. If you found the Investing in Regenerative Agriculture and Food podcast valuable, there are a few simple ways you can use to support it. Number one, rate and review the podcast on your podcast app. That's the best way for other listeners to find the podcast, and it only takes a few seconds. Number two, share this podcast on social media or email it to your friends and colleagues. Number three, if this podcast has been of value to you and if you have the means, please join my membership community to help grow this platform and allow me to take it further. You can find all the details on gumroad.com slash investingregionag or in the description below. Thank you so much and see you at the next podcast. <laughs>